If you will turn to Philippians, Paul's epistle to the Philippians. And we're going to consider this morning verses 10 through 13. However, before we look at this passage, please put a, uh, a bookmark there and turn over to Revelation chapter 15. We'll look at a couple of passages here in Revelation. Revelation chapter 15. Verses 1 through 4. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over the image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee. For thy judgments... Are made manifest. Here we see here in this vision. John sees in the Holy Spirit. The people of God. Victorious. And you notice here. What are they rejoicing in? They're rejoicing in God. And they're rejoicing in his works. And in his ways. And they say that he only. Is holy. These are the people of God rejoicing in God's works and God's ways. And these are the people of God that have gotten the victory over the enemies of God and over their enemies, the enemies of their soul, the enemies of their faith. But what kind of ways are these that God put them through that they're now rejoicing in? So look back at Revelation chapter 7 and we'll see these same saints Revelation chapter 7, 13 through 17. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Neither shall the sun light on them nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. These are people who went through great tribulation. 
and suffered much. And they rejoice in God's ways. They rejoice in the God who put them through that. Now they're able to look back and rejoice. And that's what we need to talk about this morning. We're going to look at godly contentment in a time of abasement. So if you'll flip back over to our passage, we're going to be studying in Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians chapter 4, we have Paul, and he's in jail. Jail's not pleasant today. It sure wasn't pleasant back then. And uh, Paul's been through the roughs. He counts on people to support him and help him, his other believers. And there has been kind of a lapse that believers have been able to help him for some reason, but now he's getting his uh, help again. And he says these words in uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, that is, anxious, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. I uh, had the opportunity the last couple of weeks to do some studying. And one of the things I focused on was this idea of contentment. And I wanted to look at the sin of murmuring and also its opposite virtue, godly contentment. And I looked at, at uh, the writings. There's a couple of, of the Puritan writers that I looked at in particular, uh, Jeremiah Burroughs and, and Thomas Watson. And I got a lot of benefit from that. And so I wanted to share with you uh, many of these things that I learned in this study. Because this is a high-level virtue of Christianity. Because we're dealing with matters of the heart. When you come to Christ, it's understood by anyone who comes to, to the Lord Jesus that there are things in your life you've got to repent of. How it usually works with a, with a believer is when you first come to Christ, you're going to become aware of your sins. You're going to become aware of the things that displease him. And and usually it's the really obvious, blatant, outward things that first come to your attention. Whatever these sins are that you happen to be living in. We all have propensities to certain sins. And it might be those are the things that you're really awakened to that you have to repent of. And it might be a hard battle to get to fight against those sins and to repent. But what I found in my own Christian life is as you, as you uh, are sanctified in these blatant outward sins, God, isn't, God doesn't stop there. God goes inward. He goes deeper and deeper. And he's dealing with things of the heart. 
He's dealing with things of the mind. To the world, just ceasing from outward actions is good enough. Right? To the world, it doesn't matter what's going on in your mind. To the world, it doesn't really matter what's going on in your heart, so long as you're not actually, you know, robbing somebody or, you know, outwardly doing something bad. But God is not satisfied with that. God is a spirit, and those who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. The Lord sees the heart. And God is not content with mere outward repentance. He demands a heart change, heart attitude. One of the sins that we as fallen human beings are most guilty of is complaining and discontent. Matter of fact, it isn't even really considered a sin. You think about it. I challenge you one day to, to, when you wake up in the morning, mark, say, today I want to pay attention to how many times I complain and how many times I'm discontent in my heart. Just make a mark of it and try to put, put like a little check mark in a notebook or something, how many times. But see, that's, that's wrong. There's something wrong if we live that way. And if you're a child of God, God's not going to let you live in that. He's going to teach you the right way. Now notice these saints that we looked at in Revelation. They went through the roughs. You and I have never experienced what those believers experienced. They were killed. Brutally murdered. These Christians that those first letters of Revelation went to, many of those Christians were brutally murdered. They suffered much for their faith in Christ and they rejoiced in God's providence. That's hard. That takes a strong faith. So let's look at Paul here. Notice what he says. He says he's very happy in verse 10. He's rejoicing that the believers are able to continue their support for him. Right? He needs them to help him. Bring him stuff he needs. Food. You know, clothing. There are some jails around the world that uh, they don't provide you your food. If your family doesn't bring you your food, you don't eat. <laughs> There's some jails around the world that are really rough. Um, so he's dependent on them. And he's very happy that they have brought this back to him. But he interjects this. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned. I have been instructed to be content in whatsoever state I am. So he has learned. That means that there was a time he didn't know that. He didn't know how. He had to learn it. If Paul had to learn it, how much more are we going to have to learn it? He says he's been instructed. Who instructed him? These Christians he was teaching? No. God instructed him. God had to teach him this lesson. God's going to teach all of us this lesson. And he's learned to be content in whatsoever state I'm in. He's learned to be content whether he's abased or whether he abounds. Because here's the thing that the world doesn't understand. Abounding doesn't bring contentment. Does it? 
You look on the news every day, you got a celebrity committing suicide or ODing. There was some beauty queen. This woman had won, uh, you know, the Miss America or something, and she took a nut. She she killed herself. She leaped off a building, committed suicide. Now the world is always confused by this. Like, well, how can these people? How can it be? They've got everything. They've got they've got money. They got fame. They got beauty. Everything and they're still not happy. Because that's not how contentment comes. Contentment doesn't come through be abounding. It's something God has to teach you. This is something Paul had to learn. It's something that we have to learn. Now, what kind of states are they? Being abased. That means being brought low. Abounding. Good times. Happy times. When you're healthy, things are going your way. The sky's blue. Grass is green. The wind's at your back. And things are going good. He had to learn it everywhere. And in all things. He had to learn this. What kind of things did Paul have to learn this in? Well, if you look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 11... Paul, as he's defending his ministry against his detractors, he brings up some of the stuff he had to go through, not because he was boasting, but because, you know, he had people always questioning his ministry because he wasn't one of the 12. They would question his apostleship. So he, he, he's defending himself and defending his ministry, and he brings up some of these things, and 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and uh, verse 23, he's talking about these detractors, these other teachers. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequent. In deaths, oft. Of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. So not only was he anxious and worried and constantly in prayer in his ministry to these new Christians, which, are, which is enough burden, he's suffering all these outward things as well. He always got plots against him. He's getting beat up all the time, in and out of jail, He's suffering. He's suffering. These are the kind of things that he had to go through. And in those things, he learned contentment. And he tells us in Philippians chapter 4 how he's able to do this. Where does the power come from to find contentment in such a life as that? And he says right there in verse 13. 
I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Right? I, 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 you see this verse all the time being used for silly stuff, like football games. It drives me nuts. That is not what this is about. This is real. This is real stuff here. Spiritual stuff. The things that Christ strengthens you for are the, the way of the cross. Following God and suffering for his name. That's what he was looking to, and that's where he got the strength. Notice, he doesn't say, I was able to do this because of my strong resolution. I wasn't able to do this. He didn't say, I was able to do this because I, I, when I was a young man, I worked out all the time and I strengthened my body. And now I'm so strong and healthy, I can handle all of these adverse situations. He didn't say that. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christ is who gave him the strength. And that's where you're going to have to get the strength for your own trials. Paul's given us an example that we have to follow in our Christian discipleship. It appears that Paul was not an oppressive man physically. And it appears from the scripture, he wasn't even a great public speaker. That's interesting. Because you, you read his letters and you would have this idea that he would be you know, Billy Graham or something, but that is not how it was. Because he gets, he gets harassed about the fact that he's not a great public speaker. So where, where is the effectiveness in his ministry coming from? Christ. Christ who strengthens him. He's not strong in body, but Christ gives him the strength. He's not a powerful public speaker, but Christ makes his words effective. Christ strengthened his soul and his faith. That's the same place you have to look outside of yourself. The world tells you to find the hero in yourself. Don't you hear that all the time? You know, look to yourself. Believe in yourself. You hear that all the time. That's the world's, that's the devil's message. Wasn't that the message that Satan gave to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? Wasn't that the message? That was it. And the world hasn't changed its tune since then. No, you don't look to yourself. You look to Christ. You're not going to make it in your own strength. Paul made it to the end in Christ's strength. So whether you're healthy or unhealthy, whether you're young or old, the strength has got to come from Jesus Christ. And that's another reason why none of us have a reason to be proud. How can I be proud above another Christian or think that I'm better when I'm as... 100% dependent on Christ Jesus as that other believer is. I'm nothing in myself. And Christ said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So humility is going to go along with this. So this godly contentment is a heart attitude. It's a heart attitude. God cares about our attitudes. He cares about the attitude of our heart. And here's the thing about this heart attitude. It's not supposed to be just here and there. It's supposed to be a constant heart attitude. Every day, all the time, 24-7. We should have a heart full of this godly contentment. And notice what Paul said here. He said, everywhere and in all things means all the time 
that godly contentment should remain stable and steadfast. Let's look at some examples from the Psalms. If you turn over to Psalm 138, I love the Psalms because here we see the heart of a believer. And very often you can find yourself in the Psalms, the highs and lows of following the call of God. And if you look at the whole context of this psalm, here is a believer, David, who has been through hard times. He's been put through many trials. And he's not through them all yet, as we're going to see. And yet, look at his heart attitude. He says, I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. In the day when I cried, thou answered me and strengthened me with the strength of my soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise thee, O Lord, when they hear the words of thy mouth. Yea, they shall sing in the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord be high, yet he hath respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the work of thine own hands. Here we see a believer in the midst of trial. And look at the confidence and hope. And he's not complaining. He's content. But you know, this is going to be a battle to reach that kind of heart contentment. He's confident that what God has begun in his life, he's not going to stop mid-course. God is going to perfect that which concerns me, he says. And he says, God's going to revive me. If you turn over to Psalm 43, we can see the struggle that a believer has to go through to get to that point. In Psalm 43, we see here the believer uh, under persecution. Suffering injustice. And look what he says. Judge me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For thou art the God of my strength. You see that? You saw it. He said the same thing in the other one. God is his strength. Look what he says. Why dost thou cast me off? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me unto thy holy hill and to thy tabernacles. Then will I go unto the altar of God, unto God my exceeding joy. Yea, upon the harp will I praise thee, O God, my God. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope in God. 
for I shall yet praise him who is the health of my countenance and my God. So you can see here in verse five, he's fighting to maintain this godly contentment. He's preaching to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? In his soul, he's feeling it. He's depressed. He's afraid. Anxious about the future. And there is a temptation to despair. And to believe that maybe God isn't going to help you. Maybe God isn't going to come through. But what does he do? He's preaching to himself. Why are you like it? He knows in his mind the word of God. He knows what God has said. He believes it in his mind. But he's got to get his heart in it. See, sometimes we can be divided like that, right? We'll know something, but then we find our feelings don't match. We know God loves us, but then our hearts are wavering. And what do you do like that? You don't give in to those feelings. David doesn't give in to those feelings. Feelings are strong, right? Emotions are strong. But what God has said is stronger. God's word is more reliable than your feelings. And when your feelings and God's word don't match, then you got to bring your feelings up to God's word. You got to preach to yourself. You got to believe God's promises. And that's what he does. He's not going to be content with a wavering heart. He's demanding of his soul to hope in God and rejoice in God. And notice the things he says, I will go to the altar of God unto God, my exceeding joy. When God is your exceeding joy. When he is number one in your life, you will be content with everything he does. When you're not content with God's providence, that means that God is not your number one exceeding joy. Because if you love God above all things, then you're going to love God's will above all things. And sometimes God's will is going to cross your will. But that's okay. Because if you love God, you're going to bring your will in line with God's will. And maybe it's God's will for you to go through hardship but if God's your exceeding joy you can find joy in that because God's will is being done isn't that what the Lord taught us to pray hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven this is how we hallow God's name by rejoicing in his will being done and his kingdom coming and here's the reason why you can rejoice, believer, in God's will being done. Because that kingdom is coming in you. That kingdom is being built in your heart. You're the temple of God. You're the kingdom he's building. Together, the believers of God all over the world are being built into a holy temple. You're one of those stones. And so the hardships that you're going through have a purpose. They're not in vain. God isn't putting you through hardship because he enjoys your suffering. 
God is putting you through hardship because he's fashioning you, informing you into the image of Jesus Christ. There's a purpose, and it's a good purpose. He's doing this because he loves you. But see, it takes faith to believe that. You're going to have to preach to yourself, like the psalmist did here in Psalm 43. Thou art the God of my strength. Why dost, I, why, why dost thou cast me off? Why go I mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O oh, send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. It seems like God's hiding his face. Everything's dark, but he knows where to find light. He calls upon God to give him a light. And he's not giving up his faith in the Lord. Contentment is based on having God as our great treasure. Everything in this life is going to be taken away from you. Everything. Everything. When you're young, I remember when I was young, man, I thought I was Superman. I was 20, and I was in such awesome, good, healthy shape, man, and I was, I was full of myself. And I really thought, I mean, I couldn't understand people. I really, I didn't have much empathy for people suffering because I never really suffered. You know, I know better now. Everything that you have is going to be taken away. Your youth, your health, your strength. Some of you might be really sharp. You know, as you get older, your memory starts to go. I mean, everything. Money, your family, loved ones everything but there's one thing that cannot ever be taken away from you and that's the lord our god if he is your treasure everything and, and i'll tell you something else everything that you lose in this life you get back if god's your treasure you get it all back again you're gonna get your sharp mind back you're gonna get your healthy body back you're gonna get all your loved ones back you're gonna get everything if God is your number one treasure. Look at Habakkuk chapter 3. I love this passage. Habakkuk was right at the end of the Old Testament. And Habakkuk, Habakkuk had a problem. Habakkuk was witnessing in the world terrible injustice. He was seeing the rise of the Babylonians. And these Babylonians, they were like, I mean, they were bad. They were like Nazis. They're going all over. They're conquering people, torturing people. I mean, they're bad. And they're coming. They're coming for the Jews. And they're suffering. And he sees the injustice. And he's calling on God. Why is it like this? Why is the world like this? And we know that the great message of Habakkuk that's in here is that the just shall live by faith. God has ordered these things in his providence. They fulfill God's purpose, even the rise of the wicked, the suffering of the righteous, judgment on sinners. All of these things are part of God's plan. And God says to Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. Continue to trust in God. And at the end of this little book of Habakkuk, in chapter 3, verse 16, 
chapter 3, verse 16. We have this song of praise from Habakkuk. Even though the message he got from God was hard, that they're going to suffer at the hands of these Babylonians. They're going to suffer terribly. Look what Habakkuk says. When I heard, my belly trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered into my bones, and I trembled in myself, that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he cometh up unto the people, he will invade them with his troops. Although the fig tree not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, and labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off in the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like hinds feet. And he will make me walk upon my high places. So notice again. He's going to rejoice and have joy in the Lord. And again we see here. The Lord God is my strength. You see that over and over again. We saw that in Paul. Right? I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. And here, in all these passages, we see the same thing. This isn't a new doctrine that came from Paul. This is the way all believers in all times have trusted in God. You find your strength outside of yourself. You find your strength in the Lord. And when God brings us together in times like this, it's so that you can be prepared for whatever God has for you out there. He's given us a moment here, a safe harbor, where you can hear the word of God. And he's showing you what to do. Because when the wave hits you, and you're tumbling, feet over head and head over feet, it's hard to put all this stuff together. Prepare yourself now. Learn these lessons. Godliness with contentment is great gain. God must be our treasure. Now, I wrote down a list of ten things that I think are good considerations to have when you are striving for this godliness with contentment. Okay, ten considerations. And I'm sure there are many, many more. But I just wrote down these 10. So that when you have to go through the fiery trial, your heart is not going to rise up in resentment against God. Have you ever had that happen to you? You ever had, you ever felt your heart rising up? Discontent? Resentment? Why are you doing this to me, God? I, I did everything right. I was going to church. I gave up that sin. Why am I going through this now? And your heart wants to rise up as if God has done you some wrong. We can't let that happen. That's human nature. But remember, you have a new nature as a believer. And you have to put to death the old man. When that old man starts talking that trash, you have to put it down. And these considerations are going to help you, I believe. So, the first consideration that I wrote down was this. Jesus told us what to expect being his follower. Jesus didn't hide anything. What do you think baptism means? 
What are we baptized into? Christ and death. That right there represents death and the cross. Christ's for us and ours with him. When we are united to Christ, we're united in him to his life and to his death and to his resurrection. If you're going to be a follower of the Lord Jesus, you have to take up the cross. He said, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life will lose it. But whosoever will lose his, his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. He said, count the cost. Right? Jesus didn't trick people into being Christians. Right? We got a lot of that foolishness happens in our day. It's sad. It's no wonder you got so many people apostatize and, you know, become enemies of Christianity if they got juked into being a Christian, at least a nominal Christian to begin with. Now, if people do that, no, you got to tell people the way it is. Being a Christian is going to cost you something. Being a real Christian is going to cost you something. And a Christianity that doesn't cost anything is fake. It's a fake Christianity that doesn't cost you. We've had it good in America for a long time. Those days are gone. And they're not coming back. So we have to be prepared. Believers all over the world know this lesson. And we're, we're behind. But I fear we're going to be getting catching up here soon. It's going to be costly to follow Lord Jesus Christ. Be prepared for the world's hatred. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, the world hates me because I testify to it that its deeds are evil. That's the same reason why they're going to hate you. They do not like to be reminded what they're doing is wrong. And they're going to shut you up, whatever it takes. They're not going to win because they cannot defeat the risen Christ. They cannot defeat the powerful Holy Spirit who testifies to the world through the scriptures they are not going to silence God, but they think they can, and they're going to do their best to make it happen. Don't be shocked at that. And if you are united with Christ, if you're associated with the name of Jesus Christ, expect it. Jesus didn't lie to you or deceive you. He told you that was going to happen. Number two, another consideration. If we suffer or lose the world's goods, we have God with us. Whatever happens, God is with you. Now, that's a big thing, to know that God is with you. When you're going through a trial, it takes a lot of the burden off when you've got somebody to be with you, doesn't it? you got a friend or a family member, if you're in a hospital, and you ain't alone. You got somebody there to talk to you, somebody there to hold your hand. It makes a big difference, doesn't it? Huge difference. Sometimes you're not going to have human help like that. There's times in this life you're going to be alone as far as human help, but God's going to be with you. If you turn over to Hebrews chapter 13, 5, that's a famous passage. But you got to think about the context. 
I'll start with verse 3. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. We're always to remember the suffering of other believers. And in that context, he says in verse 5, let your conversation, your conduct, be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. That's why you can boldly say, I will not fear what man can do unto me. The only reason you can boldly say that is if God is with you. If the Lord has said to your soul, I will never leave you nor forsake you, then you can have confidence to be fearless of man. But if it's just you, you got every reason to fear man. You got every reason to fear everything if it's just you. But if God is your helper, you can be bold and content. Notice the mention of contentment here. Covetousness is something that we should not be burdened with. A desire to have things, the things of the world. And speaking of the world, we go to the third point. The world is a shallow an empty place, and it's temporary. So if you keep that in your mind, it does make contentment a lot easier. A lot of times, what makes us discontent is we see other people and what they have. We were perfectly content until we saw, so I saw, you know, my buddy with a nice new pickup truck. Then all of a sudden, I'm discontent, right? <laughs> we see what other people have, and then it makes us discontent. But that's not, that's not cool. Here's the reason why. Because this world is all empty. It's all empty. It's all shallow and temporary. You know, that shiny new pickup truck, it's stamped aluminum and plastic. And it depreciates thousands of dollars the second you drive it off the lot, right? I mean, if you really think about all the glittering special stuff of the world, when you really think about it, it really isn't all that. Turn to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Here's Paul again. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 through 12. And consider again, Paul is writing in response to false teachers. These false teachers are, are making religion a, a means of worldly benefit, right? It's like these TV preachers. Man, you, you look at these guys, you listen to these guys, and they basically turn Christianity into some kind of witchcraft or something, where if you do all this stuff, all these good things are going to happen to you. Right, And they got all these 
stories about how, you know, somebody gave them a hundred bucks and they went to their mailbox and it was $10,000 and they, they got all these lies and ridiculous stories, right? That, that, that godliness is a means of gain, but that is not Bible Christianity. Those people are heretics. They're not saved. Those guys are not saved and they're not going to heaven. They're, they're the exactly kind of people that Paul is dealing with in his day. Look what he says in chapter 6. Verse 3, if any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, to the doctrine, which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. Withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith, and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things, and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. See, that's what you did when you got baptized. When you were baptized, you were making a public profession of faith. You are professing that you are willing to leave everything and follow Jesus Christ. You made a public profession that you're willing to join with him in the cross. And now our lives have to reflect that profession as being true. Don't make your profession of faith into a lie by coveting after things in the world. And be willing to sacrifice conscience and godliness for the world. Don't do that. Notice the things that Paul brings up that the man of God is supposed to follow after. They're all virtues. Spiritual things. Righteousness. Godliness. Faith. Love. Patience. Meekness. Those are the things you're supposed to be seeking after. Those are the treasures when you're being conformed to the image of Christ. Because truly, the things that you wear yourself out for in this life, you don't even get to take with you anywhere. They don't follow you into heaven. So we got to put the kingdom of God first. And God will provide for us the things we need for this life. But we put the spiritual first. So, the world is shallow and empty and temporary. The fourth point I wanted to bring up to help you remember how important godliness with contentment is, is the opposite. Discontent makes your service stink. Discontentment and complaining is a stench to God. And it makes everything you do stink. Even the religious stuff you do. You remember in the wilderness wanderings, 
you remember how the people of Israel, that constant complaining and discontent, that's what was always getting them in trouble. They go a little while, you know, go a little way, and and water, you know, is kind of get a little low, and there they would go. God doesn't care about us. He brought us out here to kill us. Let's go back to Egypt. It was better to be a slave. That's blasphemous. Now think about it. When you became a believer, when you were baptized to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, that's just like coming out of Egypt. Right? Same kind of thing. It's, it's a, it's, those two things go together as like pictures. So now you're following Christ. Are you going to do like the people of Israel? You're going to complain now that you have been brought out of sin, out of Egypt? You're going to complain about how rough it is following Jesus? How maybe it was better before when you lived in your sins? Are you going to do that? If you look at Malachi, turn to Malachi. We can get an example of this in the Old Testament. Last book of the Old Testament. And at this point, um, the people of God, they they had come out of Babylon. They had been brought back into the land. And God had been very merciful to them. And although they did have trials and, and hard times they had to go through, they had much to be grateful for, but instead they're going to offer to God complaining. In Malachi 1.13, God says this about the offerings. He said, Ye said also, Behold, what a weariness is it, and ye have snuffed at it saith the Lord of hosts. And you brought that which was torn and the lame and the sick. Thus you brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, said the Lord? Why should God accept something like that? Why should God accept your works that are all mixed up with complaining and resentment and discontent? See how important heart attitude is to God? In our lives, we should offer up a right heart and a right spirit to God. That's what makes your works pleasing to God, is faith. Works apart from faith are dead and rotting and they stink. So we have to, it is absolutely imperative as Christians that we declare war on complaining and grumbling and discontent. We cannot live with that in our lives. Otherwise, God is displeased with your life. Number five, point number five. We owe God an infinite amount of gratitude because as bad as our circumstances are in following Jesus, they're still better than the gutter he pulled us out of. You remember that? Remember back to where you were. It's good to think back. Where were you when Christ called you? It it brings gratitude to your heart to remember it wasn't no good thing. 
Sin ain't sweet. It, it's, it's fake. It's fake happiness. It's sweet in your mouth and bitter in your belly. And you know how empty and lonely it is to be without God. Remember that? That's when you were alone. And as bad as things get following Jesus, listen, hell with Jesus is better than heaven without him. Things of this life are hard. But with Jesus, it's bearable. And you can do it. And you can overcome. But think back to your life of sin before Christ. And remember the gratitude you owe Him. And don't complain. One of the psalmists said, I'd rather be a doorkeep in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. I can say that about myself. I would rather have the smallest, tiniest corner in the kingdom of God, the lowest place, than to be a king in this world. Because the lowest place in the kingdom of God is better than anything this world has to offer. And if you've tasted the Lord and know that he's good, you know what I'm saying is true. Now some people, there might be somebody in here who's not saved, never known the Lord spiritually and in truth. But those of you who have known the Lord know exactly what I'm talking about. You may have had the world's good and nothing comes close. Sitting in a jail cell with Paul is heaven compared to what this world calls heaven. Because being right with God and having the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, that's heaven. That's heaven. So remember your past life. When things get tough and you're tempted to complain and grumble, think about life without God. What would life without God be? Because if you're ever tempted to renounce Christ, people are doing it all over the place now. They're renouncing their baptism. You go on YouTube and see people doing it, formally renouncing Christ. Are they going to escape the hardships of life doing that? Oh, no. Only now they're alone. Now there is no hope for the future. No forgiveness. No salvation. You still got to go through the hardships of life. But at the end of it, there ain't no heaven. There's hell. So remember these things when you're tempted to complain. I'll tell you another thing, and that leads into the next one. Point six. Discontentment opens your heart to temptation from the devil. Discontentment leaves you wide open. Think about Eve. How was Satan able to successfully bring her to the place where she was ready to sin? What did he do? He stirred up discontent. She was fine before Satan came and started planting little seeds in her mind. Maybe you don't have it too good, Eve. Maybe God's holding something back. Maybe God's not been entirely truthful with you. Maybe he's holding you down. Right? Planting that discontent. You know, wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be better if you were like God? Because if you eat of that fruit, you'll be like God. Discontent was her downfall. If she could have said, nope. 
I am joyful and happy right where I am. He'd have been foiled. <laughs> That'd have been it. But she listened. And how often do we listen? Think about Judas Iscariot. What did he have right there in front of him? And what did he sell it for? Some little measly bag of coins. He wasn't, he wasn't content with Christ. And when he figured it out, it was too late. So discontent opens your heart to the temptations of the devil. It gives him a place to work. It gives him something to work on. That's how he can lead you to sin. He can lead you to deny the faith. A little sin like discontentment, grumbling and complaining can, can take you there. You remember King Saul. You know, he was a mess. But you remember how finally he was in need of guidance from God and God wasn't answering his prayers. Instead of doing the right thing, what did he do? He turned to a witch. He said, I'll go to a witch. A witch will help me. Discontentment leads you places you thought you'd never go. So don't give a place to discontentment. Point number seven. A little more positive. Every affliction is an opportunity to glorify God and sanctify his name. Think of it that way. When you enter into that trial, and whether it's a hard trial or it's something silly, like you, you, know, you stubbed your toe or something, that's in God's providence. You broke your toe and that hurts. And we complain. It's usually little stuff like that that we complain the most about, right? But we shouldn't complain about anything. But every affliction is an opportunity to glorify God and sanctify his name. It's not enough to submit to God's sovereignty in his providence. We have to delight in God's will and providence. You understand? It's, that's, good. that's a good start when you say, well, I'm going through this. And God has ordained this trial for me, and he is God, and I'm his servant, and I must bear it. Okay, that's, a, that's true, but that's not good enough. You have to delight in God's will. You have to rejoice in God's will. Because God's will is good and right. It isn't just, well, I got to submit to it because he's bigger than me and stronger than me. And, you know, I'll get in trouble if I don't just bear it. No, 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 no. You have to rejoice because God's will's being done. And if God's will is your will, then you're going to be happy. You can find happiness in the trial. Because, and you're like, well, how, how in the world are you going to find happiness in some tragedy? Because God is going to bring it to the good. God has said he is going to bring it to the good. He works all things to the good of those that love him. 
So you have to find that joy. You have to get to that level of spiritual maturity to where not only do you submit and bear God's will, but you rejoice and delight in God's will. In Psalm 40, we have um, prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. And there in the Spirit, Christ is speaking in Psalm 40 about the cross. And he says, I delight to do thy will, O God. Your law is in my heart. Thinking about the cross. He's delighting in God's will. And the cross was not a pleasant thing. That's where we have to get to. You're like, well, that's Jesus. But listen, you're in Christ. God's making you like him. You have the same spirit of faith. And remember what Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. That means you can do that. Through Christ, you can rejoice and find joy in suffering. If God is your treasure, you can do it. Now, if you're still clinging to something of this world, if something of this world is your treasure, you're going to fail. But if God is your treasure, you will win. Every affliction is an opportunity to glorify God and sanctify his name. Think about Job. Remember what Job went through? And he didn't understand what was going on. Remember, he didn't have a whole big Bible like we have. He had a whole lot less to go on than we do. And remember, God put him through some severe trials. His family is killed. God allows him to be struck with these diseases. He gets robbed of his possessions. And then his friends who come to comfort him, they turn against him and start accusing him of all this stuff. And, and he's, what's going on? And he's praying and God ain't answering. It's like his prayers are bouncing right back in his face. And he doesn't understand why. What does he do? What does he say? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Remember when his wife, you know, was, she ain't helping him any. And she's kind of being a stumbling block. And what does he say? Am I supposed to... You know, love God in the good times and not in the bad times. He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That was awesome and magnificent. What kind of a faith is that? Think about how he glorified the name of God. And what did he do? He shamed the devil. Oh, the devil was mad. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, he, he got through that one. But what about this, right? So the saint making a mock of the devil through faith. Job was God's champion. Vindicating God. And when you go through affliction, you're in the exact same situation. What are you going to do? Are you going to fail? Or are you going to win? You're going to be like Job and get to victory? Remember, you're in the same kind of situation. But here's the thing. You're more inexcusable because you have a lot more resources. There's been a lot of things happen 
between the time of Job and you now, Christ has come. We have a whole Bible here. We have a whole lot to go on to strengthen us. So you need to get the victory here. That leads to point eight. Take a good interpretation of what, what God is bringing you through. Make a good interpretation of it. A lot of times now, I'm telling you, when, when it hurts and it hits you, and the trial hits you, your first instinct is to think, well, God's abandoned me. Or God's against me. Or what did I do? I must have committed some sin. Or maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I deceived myself this whole time and I'm not even a Christian and that's why all this bad stuff is happening to me because this is it. It's my doom, right? There's all of these things can go through your mind. But what you should do is take a good interpretation of it. Don't, don't take this as, as an evidence that God has turned against you. Think about the woman that came to Jesus that had that daughter that was possessed with the demon. You remember that one? And she comes, she's a Gentile woman. And she comes to Lord Jesus for help, and he won't look at her. So she's following him around. Asking over and over, begging for help. And then he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to dogs. Man. So he went from ignoring her to insulting her? What does she do? She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs are entitled to the crumbs that fall from the table, the kid's table. And he says, woman, great is your faith. You can have whatever you want. Right? It was a test. He didn't really hate that woman. He wasn't despising that woman. He cared about that woman. He loved her. His intention from the get-go was to do her good. But he put her through a test. She took a good interpretation. How was she able to do that? Because she already knew some things about Jesus. She'd heard what he'd said. She'd, she knew the story. So she wasn't going to be fooled by that. Right? So you have to do that too. Take a good interpretation of your trouble. Don't take that as evidence that God's turned against you. God still loves you. God's bringing you through that for your good. Look at it as an opportunity to sanctify and glorify the name of God. Point nine. Godly contentment comes when you remember you are one with Christ in a temple of the Holy Spirit. If you turn to Galatians 2.20, here's something Paul talks about. Paul says this in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He sees himself in Christ. That's who he is now. 
When you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, when He's your Savior, that is you. It isn't just you. Christ is in you. You are in Christ. Christ is with you, and that's the way it's going to be forever. You will never again be alone. You're never again just you. Christ is in you. And so he sees himself in Christ. And the life he now lives, he lives by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. See, that gives you strength to endure. Your sufferings, your afflictions, the things you go through in this life are in Christ and with Christ and from Christ to Christ. It's not something separate apart from your spiritual Christian life. It's all together. Always remember that. And you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're the temple of God. God does not have a, a physical temple in Jerusalem anymore. You're the temple. God is to be worshipped there. God is to be honored there. God is to be sanctified. God's name glorified. You are the revelation of the glory of God. The temple sat on that hill in Jerusalem, way up high, and everybody could see it. It was up above everything. And everybody knew what that temple meant and what it represented. And now you're that temple. You're supposed to be the city on the hill. You're supposed to be that lamp on the lampstand shining in the darkness. You represent God to the world. You represent God to the world. Your heart attitude is a big part of revealing the power of God. Because see, the people out there that you know, they're going to see how you handle trials. And when you can walk through the fire with godly contentment, people see that. How in the world is that person able to do that? See, it makes people think. It brings attention to Jesus. A life of virtue, growing in these Christian virtues, is for the purpose of revealing Christ to the world. It's got a personal benefit for you. But it also has an evangelistic benefit because it preaches Christ. A lot of the reason why the world today has such contempt for Christianity is because there's so much fake Christianity out there, right? Fake Christians and fake Christianity. Well, they're dead, right? Dead things? I mean, you're not going to hold in high esteem. But when they see a living Christian, when they see real faith, that's different. People see, whoa, maybe there is something to this. When people see the life of Christ really is in somebody. See, because for every hundred people that say there's a Christian, there might be one that actually is. But when people actually see a true Christian and true faith, it gets attention. Don't you want to be that Christian? You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Finally, uh, point 10, there is great reward to those who persevere in godliness with contentment. And we saw in Revelation those saints 
who overcame the world. And their joy in the presence of God. And one day that's going to be you in that crowd, in the white robe with the crown. The one who got the victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's a great reward. And however the world holds you in contempt today, on that day, they're going to be wishing they were you. So you got to hold out. Hold out to the end. It's worth it. So those, I, I, uh, I hope those 10 points will help you in your own Christian discipleship to recall those things to mind when you're going through suffering and you're tempted to discontentment. You know, I told you that I, I read this book by Jeremiah Burroughs on this subject that uh, helped me out tremendously. At the end of his book, he writes this. He says, Now there is in the text, that is Philippians 4, Another lesson, which is a hard lesson, I have learned to abound. That does not so nearly concern us at this time, because the times are afflictive times, and there is now more than ordinarily an uncertainty in all things in the world. In such times as these, there are few who have such an abundance that they need to be much taught in that lesson, how to abound. <laughs> I thought that was funny. He was going through hard times when he wrote that book. It was during the English Civil War. And uh, the country was in turmoil. And there was, you know, terrible things happening. He says, well, I've covered how to be abased. We don't have to worry about how to abound because none of us have that problem. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, but anyway, next week, God willing, I do want to look at that, though. I, I think that that is something profitable. You know, how should a Christian abound? Because believe it or not, there's more temptations come with abounding than come with being abased. So I think that'll be a, a profitable study. So uh, let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have provided us your great salvation in your Son, and that through him we have strength to do all things, that in him we can be abased, and we can also abound. We can do all things through him. So we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would grant us this great virtue of godliness with contentment. We know that our works and our lives are not going to be pleasing to you without this virtue. And it's a hard virtue. So we pray, Heavenly Father, that you will pour your spirit out upon us and grant us repentance and grant us that godly contentment so that we might bring glory to your name. And we'll give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.